There have been a lot of things that have discouraged and troubled people in our nation. A lot of things that have troubled people and that have been awful things across the wide world. I've been with laughing children all week in VBS, and so I've been feeling kind of happy and would like to come back to something a little lighter in the Word of God this morning than what we find in 1 Corinthians 6, which is where we are in our sermon series. Now, I don't want to be misunderstood because I actually am learning a great deal from Paul's letter to the Christians in Corinth about the Lord and about his purposes for me, first as a Christian, but then also as a pastor, and especially about his high purposes for us as a church, for our congregation, for our presbytery, for our denomination, for the body of Christ, across denominations here in St. Louis. I've actually found 1 Corinthians, even though there is some heavy going, I have found it very, very bracing, and I would say even encouraging. And I would say that right at the heart of what I have been learning in this letter is this, why it's important to understand that as Christians who live in the community of the Church of Jesus Christ, there are many things in which we are just like the people around us who do not follow Jesus. And that as Christians who live in the community of the Church of Jesus Christ, we are also supposed to be different from people around us in the way we think and the way we live. That theme, Christians are the same as everyone else, except with a profound difference, is everywhere in the Bible. And we're going to take it up today in one of the Apostle Paul's most optimistic letters, his letter to the Philippian Christians. Paul is what I would call a realistic optimist. That's what the gospel and the word gospel means, good news. That's what the gospel is, realistic optimism. If it wasn't optimistic, it wouldn't be called good news. And so here it is in Philippians 4. You find it on the insert inside your bulletin. It's here, things in which Christians are the same as other people, things in which Christians are different from other people. Now, just to quickly set the stage, this is Philippi, that is, is a largely Gentile city. There's no record of a Jewish synagogue at this time. Paul had planted this church around 51 or 52 AD. This letter is written roughly a decade later. Ten years later, Paul is in jail in Rome. We learn at the end of the letter, Nero is the emperor. And that is not good news for Paul. Now, there are two reasons um, why Paul seems to be so optimistic in this letter. The first is that Paul had a very affectionate relationship with this church, The Philippian Christians, they really loved Paul. They became deeply attached to him as their spiritual father. He had led many of them to Christ. We know from the book of Acts, from chapter 16, we know 
of at least three specific people that Paul led to the Lord. There was the businesswoman Lydia. She was Paul's first recorded convert in what we now call Europe. She traded in purple fabric. And then there was the slave girl, out of whom the apostle Paul drove a demon. And then there was the Roman jailer, together with his family. He was the police officer, as it were, who almost committed suicide because he thought that all of his prisoners had escaped after an earthquake shook loose the doors of his jail cells. By the way, notice right there with those three converts mentioned in Acts 16, the wonderful cultural diversity that Jesus Christ himself brings into his church. A slave girl, a woman of rank, and a Roman law enforcement officer. You see, the good news is for everyone... And it has the power to unite those who do not normally flock together, as the proverb goes. Birds of a feather flock together. The second reason that Paul is optimistic in his letter to the Philippians is that on the whole, this church seems to be fairly mature. Not too many huge problems in their understanding of and their commitment to sound Christian teaching, and there do not seem to be any disastrous ethical scandals like the ones that ravaged the church in Corinth. Now, it's true that in chapter 3, Paul warns them against some teachers of unsound doctrine who are out there causing trouble, but despite the fact that he is in jail and not sure whether he will live or die Paul is really pretty optimistic in this letter. I don't know about you, but I need upbeat letters as well as the challenging ones like 1 Corinthians. Now, I should have added the two final verses of chapter 3 so that you would know what the therefore is there for in 4.1. In the last two verses of chapter 3, Paul had said this, He's contrasting Christians with those who, quote, glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But we Christians, our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him to subject to himself, that is, to make serve himself, to bend to himself all things. And so then he begins chapter 4 this way, Therefore, my brothers... Now, we find this frequently in Paul's letters He uses the masculine here to represent all people in the church, men and women, even as Paul often will use the feminine to represent all people in the church, men as well as women. He does that when he refers to the church as the bride of Christ. In Holy Scripture, men as well as women are commonly represented as feminine, 
in relationship to God. Sometimes, as here, we are all represented as males, as brothers. So the meaning is, therefore all of you, my brothers and sisters, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, what does the therefore mean? Well, he means that they know that they belong first to a heavenly commonwealth, that they belong to that commonwealth which is in heaven before they are a Roman, before they are a Greek, before they are a Jew, before they are an American, before they are a Russian, before they are a European. That's their first priority, their first rung of identity. And knowing that Christ loves you so much that when he returns, he will make your very body to be exactly as his own body is now. And how is that? It is incapable of disease, of injury, of suffering, even of death, because it is immortal. This, Paul is saying, you know, this is your identity and your destiny. And because of all that, therefore, stand firm thus in the Lord. And then he says it again, my beloved. There's a sweet relationship with these believers. I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord, always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your reasonableness, the ESV has, might be translated your patience, your gentleness, your yielding as opposed to rigid attitude be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. And then this wonderful speaking of Paul into human anxiety. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, or a better translation, which transcends all your thinking, that peace of God will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, and this is one of the most wonderful texts in all of the Word of God, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever, he keeps saying whatever, he's thinking comprehensively, whether you see it in the street, in the woods, in your family, for us on the news, Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Or as Jeff the Juggler, who was here with us yesterday and our kids said, focus on these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace 
will be with you. Let's pray, shall we? Lord, we have already prayed and asked you to speak. We've sung our prayer. Lord, this is a rich and wonderful text. How we thank you for this letter, so different in tone than 1 Corinthians, even 2 Corinthians. O Lord, we pray that you would give us ears to hear. Open our hearts for all of us, O Lord. Have much need to lay hold of the realistic optimism of the gospel, the good news of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It's in his name that we ask it. Amen. Sometime in the second or third century A.D., a man named Dionysus received a letter. We don't know anything about the author of the letter, except that he, or perhaps she, was a follower of Jesus. We don't know much about Dionysus either, except for the fact that he was, as it is put in the letter, quote, anxious to understand the religion of the Christians. Now, fortunately for Dionysus and for us who can now eavesdrop on his personal mail, so to speak, someone took the time to write. Maybe it was his mentor answering some of Dionysus' questions. Questions that maybe went something like this. What makes a Christian different from people of other faiths or from those who don't believe in gods at all? Why do followers of Jesus do some things that their neighbors do, but refuse to do other things that their neighbors do? Do followers of Jesus make good citizens of the Roman Empire or bad ones? Do they honor the cultural traditions and customs of their own ethnic people that the Romans have conquered? Or do they just keep themselves aloof from everything that is not explicitly Christian? Dionysus' Christian tutor answers his questions this way. He writes that believers in Jesus, quote, are not distinguished from the rest of mankind either in locality or in speech or in customs. For they do not live somewhere in cities of their own, neither do they use some different language nor practice an extraordinary kind of life. But while they live in cities of Greeks and barbarians, as the lot of each is cast, and follow the native customs in dress and food and the other arrangements of life, in a first century clothes closet of Christians you would find togas, Just like under a 21st century bed, you might find crocs today in the home of a Christian or turkey sausage in the fridge of a believer. At least if you're eating right, you might find the turkey sausage. Yet, he says, the constitution of their own citizenship, which they set forth, is marvelous and admittedly contradicts expectation. They live in their own countries, but only as travelers. They bear their share in all things as citizens, and they endure all hardships as resident aliens. Every foreign country is a fatherland to them, 
and every fatherland is foreign. It's a wonderful statement. Christians bear their share in all things as citizens, and they endure all hardships as resident aliens. Every foreign country is a fatherland to them. Why? Because God, their heavenly Father, lives and rules wherever they live, even if it is not their native land and culture. And every fatherland is foreign. Why? Because even in their own land and culture, they are homesick in their homes. As G.K. Chesterton once put it, longing for that coming city which God has prepared for them, where there is no evil but only what is good and just, a place full of pleasure. And they know That only then, when that city comes down from heaven one day, will they be truly in their homeland. So the upshot is that in some things we Christians are just like Muslims and Buddhists. We're just like the so-called nuns, that is people who mark none on forms that ask for their religious affiliation. An increasing number of people in America, something you already know if you are paying attention. But in other things, the writer says, Christians are radically different. Because our first citizenship, our first loyalty, is to a heavenly commonwealth. Our first deep and abiding loyalty and commitment is to the one who came to save us. That's what Savior means, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I think this anonymous letter to Dionysus is truly a wonderful summary of your identity and of mine, of your destiny and mine as Christians. How are we Christians like other people? How are we different from other people? First, do a little exercise with me. Imagine that you are showing this Philippians 4 text to someone who has never read the Bible. They've never heard of the Christian faith. And you ask them, okay, what are the central and controlling ideas here in this text? What would they say? Well, I think they would say, looking at it from the farthest distance away, They would say that everything spoken to these Philippian people, everything said about them, resolves around two figures distinct from them. Someone who is called the Lord or the Lord Jesus Christ and someone who is called God. In 3.20, Paul says that their citizenship is in heaven and from that place, these Philippian people are waiting for a savior to come and rescue them quote, the Lord Jesus Christ. And then in chapter 4, in the space of just seven verses, four times, this fellow Paul talks about doing something in the Lord. That is, in this Lord Jesus Christ. Three times, it is these people themselves who are supposed to do something in the Lord And one time it is promised that this God, 
will himself do something in Christ Jesus. These Philippian people are encouraged in 4.1 to stand firm in the Lord. In 4.2 to agree in the Lord. And 4.4 to rejoice in the Lord. And then in verse 7 of chapter 4, it is promised that this God figure will give his peace to these people. And that this peace of his will, quote, guard their hearts and their minds in Christ Jesus. And then there is this other figure, God. You're never exposed to Christianity, friend might say, upon reading this text. He's mentioned three times in these seven verses. And twice he is linked to peace. The peace of God in verse 7 And then in verse 9, he is called the God of peace. How are we different from those around us? I suspect that our outside observer would say, you know, before I answer that question, I want to point out that in what this man Paul says here, he is assuring that these Philippian Christians are very much like the people around them. It's by implication, is it not? The need to be exhorted in verse 1 of chapter 4 to stand firm reveals that just like all people, Christians, when they are under pressure, they also are prone to wobble, to lose their resolve, to lose their focus. The need in verse 2 for the exhortation to agree shows that Christians, like all people, get into conflict with one another. Two women specifically are named in the church in Philippi who have had some kind of conflict, some kind of disagreement. Just take the current political divide. It runs right through the church this congregation, and most other places that name the name of Christ and are orthodox in their teaching. Christians are not immune from conflict. We are just like everybody else in that regard. And in verse 4, the need for the exhortation to rejoice when the circumstances of life are difficult and painful shows that like everybody around them, Christians are prone to discouragement, to getting overwhelmed by the brokenness of the world and by their own brokenness. And even are prone sometimes to a kind of complaining bitterness. Why am I being dealt such a lousy hand? Christians are very much like those around them, I think this observer would say. But Christians are also different from those around them. How so? Well, anybody looking into this text from the outside, looking objectively at this text, would have to say that for Christians, the peace of God is foundational for their living. 
And secondly, that the Lord Jesus Christ is the central focus of what they do. That everything revolves around him. He is the son around whom their habits and decisions orbit. And all that they are to think and do, they are to do it in him, in the Lord Jesus Christ. And I think this outsider would then add, and I am very curious to know what this man Paul means by in the Lord. Well, let's try to answer that because it is a good question. Paul actually loves this phrase, in the Lord. Sometimes he uses in Christ. And if we pull together all that the apostle teaches about Christ and about his redeeming work, about who he is and what he has done, I think it is safe to say that in the Lord or in Christ combines three things. It means, first of all, on the Lord as the ground or basis of our action. It also means for the Lord as our motive of love for him in that action. And it means through the Lord as the agent empowering us to accomplish it. Now, friends, that's remarkably Liberating. It is incredibly refreshing because particularly the first and the third things here, the ground and the agency, the teaching of the New Testament is that it does not belong to you, it belongs to Christ. The ground or basis of your standing firm, which you are to do if you name the name of Christ. Standing firm in your faith, standing firm, holding your ground in the ethical choices in front of you under tremendous pressure from a culture that lives by a very different set of standards. The ground of your agreeing with another believer or group of believers with whom you have been in conflict. The ground of your rejoicing that is cultivating gladness, cultivating a contented heart, even in the midst of what is painful and hard. The ground of those three things that the Apostle Paul enjoins on Philippian believers and on you and me, if in fact we call ourselves disciples of Jesus, the ground of that is not your own strength your spiritual insight, or your spiritual power, or your passion for God. The ground, friends, is the finished work of Christ at the cross and in the empty tomb. Because that's where the power of darkness, the grip that the darkness of our self-will had on our throats, that's where it was broken. The dark power of our self-will is not broken in your gut-wrenching efforts to do what God wants, even though often they are gut-wrenching, but rather it is in Christ's death where he died to sin, as Paul puts it. My sin, your sin, 
and then paying the penalty for the guilt of my sin. Christ broke the back of its power to tyrannize me in my living. Many in our culture recognize something profoundly different about Christians. When they saw our black brothers and sisters in Christ, in the church in Charleston, respond the way they did after nine of their people were murdered in the middle of a Bible study. It was the power of grace and forgiveness. Tanya yesterday told me a story, the outline at least, of a story of a Christian woman that she just met in Oklahoma The story of a childhood so dark at the hands of her mother that it was difficult even to believe. But now this woman, this follower of Jesus, lives with a forgiving spirit so full of love even toward her mother that it too is hard to believe. So also for what might be called the agency in your living, in aiming to stand firm under the pressure to conform to the culture around you, in aiming to agree with another believer, that is to find a basis for settling a conflict with another Christian or for living with that conflict in a mature way, in aiming to rejoice in the face of what is difficult. Paul is in a tough situation. Nero has been emperor already for eight years. And the stories abound of his cruelty, of his capriciousness. In the face of difficult and even awful things, you are not aiming at those things as the primary agent of action. You're not aiming at rejoicing. You're not aiming at standing firm. You're not aiming at resolving conflict in your own strength as if you were alone, as if Jesus is like the coach and he gives a little pep talk on the side and then he pushes you out into the field hoping for the best as you go out there by yourself. On the contrary, it will be in the same chapter that the Apostle Paul goes on to make the agency of the Lord absolutely specific when he says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I saw a bumper sticker Wednesday that sent chills up and down my spine, and it read like this, none but ourselves can free our minds. I know myself. I'm not in good shape, if that is true. For a Christian, this thought that we are left to ourselves is nearly the most depressing idea possible. And even when it comes to the motive, doing all that I do for the Lord, That is, aiming at doing it because I love him. Even there, yes, it is true. It is my love. It is my heart moved. My heart turned soft toward the Lord for his great love for me. But even there, do we not find our love so feeble, 
so weak, so often so dry, so unmoved by what ought to move us, that we cry out, O Lord, you fill my empty cup, fill up my love, that I might love you more dearly than I do. So that's the core of what makes Christians different. Christ is the center for us. He is the ground. He is the motive. He is the agent. That's what Paul means when he challenges us to stand firm in the Lord under pressure, to agree in the Lord in conflict with Christians, to rejoice in the Lord when things around you or even inside of you look very, very dark and bleak. We'll save for next week Paul's counsel as to what we are to do with our anxiety. And then that wonderful exhortation in verse 8 that, friends, even to hear lifts our spirits. Paul says, essentially in verse 8, guys, be realistic optimists. Don't pretend I might not be executed at the hand of Nero. Don't pretend the political and the racial divide in America isn't there. Don't pretend the darkness, the confusion, the anger, the deadness, whatever it is that you find inside of yourself isn't there. Face all of it, but in spite of it, because Jesus is the Savior. And he is the Lord who equips us. And he is coming again to change our bodies. Therefore, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence anywhere, if there's anything worthy of praise, focus, think about these things.